Good morning. If you are one of our pirate ship or battleship kids, you guys can head out the back door. Where's our volunteers? In the back? There they are. They are the people wooing in the back. You guys can head back there. Pirate ship, battleship, pay parents, quick note to you. Uh, They'll both be meeting in the cafeteria, so you can pick them up there after the service. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, at the Church Came Bay, man, it's just a delight to be with you. My wife told me that it would look nice if I tucked my shirt in this morning, and one of the guys in the back told me that I looked like I was trying to sell him a house, so I'm a little self-conscious about it. I hope that's okay that I can tell you guys that. It's a safe place, all right? So if you guys just be cool about it, I'll forget about it, and we'll move on. It'll be fun. How many of you have been watching uh, the World Cup? Anybody been watching the World Cup? All right, yes, awesome. How many of you, like, love soccer? Okay, some of you, yeah, all right, <laughs> not as many as watch the World Cup. I'm in that boat. I don't love soccer, all right, like I never have. Uh, didn't grow up playing soccer, probably because I wasn't good at soccer growing up, and I didn't play things I wasn't good at. Also, I kind of believe that my forefathers didn't fight and die for soccer, so uh, it just kind of worked out that way, where I just wasn't a big soccer fan. However, I am a patriot, and anytime the United States is competing in anything, I'm like ramped up to 11 about the fact that the United States is in the World Cup. Uh, and so, if you've been watching any of it, I mean, I, I was into the whole group stage, and then we went uh, last, uh, earlier this week, and uh, we were actually eliminated from the World Cup by Belgium, which was a little bit disheartening for me, uh, particularly because we lost to Belgium, because Belgium and the United States have combined to make something that's truly beautiful in my life, that is chicken and waffles. Like, any, like you know what I'm saying? Like fried chicken, United States, waffles, Belgium, combined, delicious. All right? Like if you haven't had chicken and waffles, I, yeah, I pray. Like I'm going to pray that you find somewhere today to eat chicken and waffles because it is incredible. My favorite place to eat chicken and waffles is probably this little place in Atlanta. Uh, it's called uh, Gladys Knight's Chicken and Waffles. And it's, it, yeah, and it, it's as good as it sounds. All right? Like that sounds good even better. So while I was at uh, Gladys Knight's Chicken Waffles, I was having a conversation with the, with the waitress, and she kind of asked, she was like, do you know how Chicken and Waffles got their start? And I just kind of assumed uh, always that Chicken and Waffles just kind of started with some single dude, right? You know he had to be single because his wife's like, no, we're not doing that. Like, you know, like he's looking in his fridge, and he's like, all right, I got Eggos, and I got leftover KFC. Let's put them together and see what happens. And it was an incredible moment in time. Like, that's what I just thought chicken and waffles came from. But it's not where it actually originated. Uh, there's a little bit of dispute on this. If you read on Wikipedia, like there's a little bit of talk about it d- developed elsewhere. But I'm going to listen to Waitress Lady at Gladys Knights because she seemed to know what she was talking about. She's an expert. She works there. Uh, and I remember that she was like, okay, so here's what happened. In the 1930s and 40s, uh, they would have these jazz shows in big cities like Detroit, Chicago, uh, New York City. And, and generally, these shows sometimes wouldn't let out until midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And, and the patrons would then leave the show, and they'd want to go somewhere for, to, to get something to eat. But, but some of the patrons wanted dinner, and some of them wanted breakfast. And so some restaurants got really smart, and they decided, we'll just combine the two, and Chicken and Waffles was born incredible discovery by those people. Like, thank you for that. So it was just this kind of idea, this common conviction to please the consumer that led to this uncommon practice of putting chicken and waffles together that produced, at least in my mind, amazing results. So we're going to talk, I know some of you guys are like, what in the world is he talking about this for? And he's just made me really hungry, and we don't get out of here for another two hours based on how long he preaches. Don't worry about this. Just understand, I'm going somewhere with this. 
If you've been here for the last couple weeks, ever since the Sunday after Easter, we started looking at the book of Acts. On Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we started the week after, we said, okay, so we always talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but sometimes we forget that, like, what happens immediately afterwards. So we started this series called the Acts of the Spirit. In your Bibles, if you look, you'll see the book of Acts, and you'll see it's called Acts of the Apostles. That's one way to look at it, but what we've discovered over this series is actually probably better to call it the Acts of the Spirit, because what it is is a testament to the Holy Spirit working through the apostles for the beginning of the early church. And so if you've been here, you've seen that we've walked through some incredible moments in the life of the early church. We see in Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost happen where the Holy Spirit falls on the people like fire and this incredible miracle occurs. Then we see at the end of Acts chapter 2, just this incredible unity that we see around the believers. They have this deep fellowship and this common conviction to see the gospel go forth. Then, in the last couple chapters, we've seen miracles happen. Peter and John heal a man who was lame, and we see opposition rise against that. Last week, we talked about the Sanhedrin, the the Supreme Court, uh, for all intents and purposes, of the Jewish nation, stands and tells Peter and John and the apostles, no longer preach the gospel. You can't preach about this Jesus who's risen from the dead. And Peter and John say, man, we got no choice. We got to testify to the things that we've seen and heard. And this morning, we're going to finish up in Acts chapter 4. And Luke, the writer of Acts, goes back to talking about the church at large here. He goes back to talking about the collective church, which has now grown very large. Some scholars believe that the church at this time had grown to over 10,000 people. So there's a lot of folks now that are proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord. And in Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4, Luke goes back and talking about some of the things that mark the early church. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. We want everybody in here to have a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, uh, if you'll just stop by the connection table on your way out and just say, hey, I don't have a Bible. We'd love to give you one. That's our gift to you. If you just left your Bible in the back seat of your car, we're not going to give you a Bible. Uh, just bring yours in next time. Uh, so, but if you don't have one, don't own one, we'd love for you to have one. Also, if you're uh, technologically savvy, uh, if you want to follow along on your iPad or iPhone, if you download the version app of the Bible, what you can do right there is click on Live events and you'll just search for Church at Cane Bay and you'll have all my notes, all the scriptures right there live on your phone, on your iPad. No matter how you follow along this morning, I hope that you would follow along with us in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 32 and read through the end of the chapter. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke records here at the end of chapter 4, what I believe uh, is, is he's recording the common convictions of the early church. And those common convictions that they had as an early church led to uncommon practices, which then produced incredible results. So the central truth I want to unpack this morning, if you're looking for just kind of a bite size, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to look through this morning? It's this truth, that a spirit-led church will have common convictions to uncommon practices which will produce incredible results. 
Spirit-led church will have common convictions to uncommon practices, which will produce incredible results. Now, as I was writing this, the, the phrase uncommon practices struck me a little bit weird. I know maybe some of you, maybe you, you've never been to church before. Maybe you're not familiar with church. And the phrase uncommon practice kind of strikes you like, are, like, are they going to like sacrifice kittens? Like what's like uncommon? That's uncommon. No, that's not what I'm talking about in this idea. Uncommon practice, when I talk about the, the, the idea of an uncommon practice, it doesn't mean bad or unwise. It, it just simply means uh, some things that are not commonplace in the greater culture. Things that we don't necessarily see outside the greater culture. And the church is supposed to be marked by these things. Uh, In in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, uh, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. The call on on the life of the believer is a call to live counterculturally. To not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that oftentimes may lead to us living differently than the wider culture. And we should specifically see that in areas of the church. We see it specifically here in Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4. As Luke gives us a snapshot of this large now body of believers and the common convictions that they have that leads them to uncommon practices. So I want to look at three this morning. I want to look at three common convictions to uncommon practices and then talk about the results that they produce. The first thing that we see in the early church is they had a common participation that led to an uncommon unity. A common participation that led to an uncommon unity. First thing that he says is that the full number of those who believe are of one heart and one soul. Now on the surface, if you were here a couple weeks ago, this seems like Luke's kind of repeating himself from what he said at the end of Acts chapter 2, where he talks about that they were all together, they were breaking bread, they were going to the temple together, they were serving. And it is, in a sense, but I think he's saying something a little bit different here. Because in Luke chapter 2, he's talking about the unity of their actions. They were going and they were doing together. But in Acts chapter 4, he's talking more about the unity of their motivations. Here he's talking about the unity of their hearts. That not only were they acting as one, but they were believing as one. So what led to this unity in the life of the early church? I think two things. One, they had a common spirit. We saw this at the end of uh, the last section. Last Sunday we saw in verse 31 where it says that they gathered together and prayed and that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see that the believers are all filled with a common spirit. They have the spirit of God living among them that unifies even very different people because it's the same spirit of God. But not only do they have a common spirit, they had a common participation. Luke says this at the very beginning. He says, now the full number. He means everybody. Everybody in the early church is working with the same motivation for the same purpose. There aren't people that are standing on the sidelines. There aren't others who they've elevated and said, no, you do all the work and we'll just kind of cheer you on. No, no, no. It says the full number were working together. No one was exempt from serving in the body. No one was exempt from these things that we're going to talk about this morning, this unity, this generosity. No one was exempt from this. And this is very different than what we see in the church today, right? Like if you've been around the church, you've heard this statistic, I call it the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. And the rest of the folks just kind of gather together and they just kind of go, yeah, okay, do it. If you do it wrong, we're going to fire you. 
Like it's this idea, we've moved away from this full number where we're one unified body with one spirit all working together for the same goal, with the same motivation. Somewhere along the line, we've convinced ourselves that church is a largely spectator sport. That church is somehow us coming, singing some songs, listening to the pastor, telling it was good, even if it wasn't, on the way out, and that's that. That's it. That's church. Check it off our box. That's what we've done. That's not what the early church is. That's not how we see it modeled here first in the book of Acts. Instead, if we have a common spirit, which we believe that we do as believers in Christ, we have a common spirit, so we should have a common participation where we're working inside the body of Christ, all of us together, the same goals. Now, now, Luke says this interesting thing. He says they were of one heart and one soul. Now, this sounds like something out of a Luther Vandross song, but it's not. He says one heart. What's he mean when he says one heart? He's talking about the same motivation. You guys ever heard, we hear this a lot in athletics. Um, he's got the skill, but he just didn't have the heart. Or you say this, I just didn't have the heart to do that. Like, like what Luke is talking about here is motivation. He's saying they have the same motivation that they were fueled in the early church by the same purposes. What were their purpose? Jesus told them in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine before men that others might see it and gl- see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's their motivation, that they might be reflections of God's glory into the rest of creation so that other people might see God through them and be drawn to him. That's what we're here for. That's our motivation, that God might use us individually and collectively to reflect his glory, that others might be drawn to him, that he might get the glory, we might get the joy, and they might get the good. That's a strong motivation, and we see that in the early church. Now, it says they were of one heart, but they were also of one soul. What does this mean? It means they have the same goals. Not only do they have the same motivation, but they have the same goal. They wanted to see God glorified in all things. They wanted to see people come to know Christ. They have the same goal. Now, now let's, make this, let, let's make this applicable here. Let's make it to the church at Cane Bay. What is our goal as a church at Cane Bay? If you've been in the Discover class, you've been here uh, for any length of time, you've heard us say, Charlie even said it just a few minutes ago. Our goal, what are we working for as a church at Cane Bay? Why do we exist? Our mission statement, our vision statement is simply this, that, that every man, woman, and child in what we call our circle of responsibility or circle of accountability, that's a 10-mile radius around this school, that's 70,000 people. That every man, woman, and child inside of our circle of accountability would have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist as a church. And if we ever one day stop living for that, existing for that, then we should cease to be as a church. That's our goal. That's what we're working towards. That every man, woman, and child inside of our circle of accountability would have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. So let us work with a common participation, with a common spirit, with a common motivation, with a common goal to see that purpose achieved. Let's do it. It's going to take hard work, and it's going to take people with different gifts and people who have maybe even different methods of doing that and maybe even some different views, but, it, but have common goals and common motivations because when we have the same motivation to see God glorified and people come to know Jesus and the kingdom advance, then we're going to have an uncommon unity. Common convictions lead to uncommon practices. And I can't think of something that is more uncommon in our generation and in our culture than unity. Right? We are as fractured and disunified as a country we ever have been. You know that there are literally hundreds of political parties? 
Like we just think about the two, like Democrats and Republicans. There are hundreds of different political parties that all have their own agenda and all have their own ideas and all have their own views and all have their own motivations and all have their own so on and so forth. And they're all clamoring and working to get into power. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Green Party, Peace and Freedom, Conservatives, Communists, Socialists, Constitutionalists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We are a fractured nation. We are a fractured culture in which a unified church would make the biggest difference. And so we see that in the early church. This common conviction, this common participation, they were all working together, one heart, one soul, common spirit, uncommon unity, Amazing results. Secondly, they had a common testimony to an uncommon event. Not only did they have common participation that led to uncommon unity, they were sharing a common testimony to an uncommon event. Look what he says in verse 33. Look what Luke says in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now the great power, like the unity, previously, came from one source, and that was from the Holy Spirit. The great power with which they're able to do miracles and they're able to testify to the resurrection of Jesus came from the Spirit of God living within them. Now, we've talked about this previously. We've said this a bunch. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not this indistinct it. It's not this mystical force like Star Wars. No, the Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of God. The third part of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Son. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God himself is enabling this great power through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it says that they were giving testimony. Now, were giving is past tense, signifying that the testimony of the apostles was something that was recurring. It was a continual practice. They didn't just make testimony to it once, but they were continually speaking, preaching, telling of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Why were they doing this? They'd been forbidden by the Sanhedrin to do it. That's what we read about last week. The Sanhedrin said to him, the ruling Jewish council said to him, look, you can't preach about Jesus. You can't talk about the resurrection, and yet they continue to do it. Peter and John say, we can't help but testify to what we've seen and heard. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. They'd seen it. They'd experienced it. They knew what it meant. And they realized that the resurrection of Jesus distinguished them from every other system of belief. And it still does. And it still does. The resurrection means everything to Christianity. Paul puts it this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. You know, let me summarize what Paul just said right there. He basically said, if Jesus isn't alive, church is a lame hobby. If Jesus isn't alive, 
then let's disband this thing, man, because there are lots of other things that you could be doing. Buy a boat, buy a bigger TV, spend time with your family, because if our hope is in this life only and Jesus isn't alive, then there's no purpose for us to gather here week after week to sing songs to a dead Lord. None, zero, let's get out of here. But if he is alive, then what we do here makes all the difference. If he is alive, what we do here is more important than anything else. The most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life is not whether you get married, not where to live, not whether to buy a house, not when to retire. The most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life is what are you going to do with Jesus who is alive? That's what Paul says. If he's not alive, dead aren't raised, let's get out of here. Let's shut this thing down. But if he is, it changes everything. And because Jesus is alive, we as the church, as individuals, can proclaim him with all the power and vigor offered to us by the Holy Spirit. That's why in Acts 4.12, the, the disciples say, and there is no salvation, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter lays it out pretty simple right there. He goes, Jesus is alive. He's different than any other God. He's greater than any other system of belief. And there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. And they proclaimed that with power. And it says that great grace was upon them all. You know what grace means? Grace means the favor of God. Undeserved favor of God. I, I, don't, I don't think that there's anybody in here that would go, you know what, I don't want the favor of God in my life. I don't care. No. So we see that in their spirit-filled testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, the favor of God was resting on them. And I believe that as a church, if we desire the undeserved favor of God, then let us go about boldly, lovingly, testifying to the resurrection and its implications. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. Common testimony to an uncommon event, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Third, they had a common commitment, had a common commitment that led to uncommon generosity. A common commitment that led to uncommon generosity. In verse 32, the end of verse 32, Luke records, he said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So we see here that the early church shared a common commitment that no one inside their midst should be in need. They had this common commitment together, the believers. They looked around and they said there shouldn't be any need among us. And they were willing to do what was necessary to make sure that that occurred. So much so that we see in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, we can proof text this, and a lot of people have. A lot of people have taken this verse out of context, and they've used it, twisted it to kind of meet their own agenda, and have said that this verse is a scriptural promotion of communism or socialism. That, that it's this kind of, this is the way that we should live. 
where nobody should, we should all just kind of share everything together. And there should be somebody that mandates, that, that mandates, that mandates that all things are shared. But that's not what we see here. It's not what we see. Communism, socialism is a mandatory sharing of goods enforced by a government or by a ruling body. Nowhere does Luke record that Peter and John and the apostles came down and said, hey, guys, guess what? Sell all your stuff because we're going to make this thing happen. Sell it all. Nowhere do they do that. The people instead recognize the need and they voluntarily live generously and begin to make sure that others are provided for, even at their own expense. Forced generosity is not generosity. Um, if I come home and buy my wife flowers, if I, if I come home from work with flowers for my wife, and I hand them to her and say, I'm giving these to you because I love you. I love you, and, and I just wanted to bring you flowers. That, that's a good thing for me to do as well. That's a generous way for me to show my love to my wife. Now, if I leave for work in the morning, and my wife says to me, don't come back here without flowers. <laughs> if I bring her flowers... It's not the same thing, right? Like it's not the same spirit in the room. <laughs> same thing. Peter doesn't go, hey, you got a house? Sell it. Because homeboy down here needs some help. It's not what he says. But the people collectively begin to go, you know what? And if there's need amongst the brothers and the sisters, then let's, we have the responsibility then, the commitment to meet that need. We need to meet that need together. So they have a shared commitment to an uncommon generosity. Now, this is foreign to us. Even as I'm reading this, I'm going, uh, how does that happen? Like, like, I'm a pastor, right? And that, like, strikes me. I'm like, uh, okay, how does, how does that work? And then Luke gives us this interesting example. He talks about Barnabas. And this isn't just a throwaway text. No, what he tells us about Barnabas, I think, is key to the way that the people are able to be this generous. Look what it says in verse 36. He gives us the example of a man named Barnabas. In verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it all at the apostles' feet. Now, Luke, this is not a throwaway text. Luke is giving us a clue into the motivation of the people to be generous by giving us the example of Barnabas. Now, he tells us a couple things about Barnabas. Barnabas is a native of Israel. He's a Jew, but he's from Cyprus. But it says that he is a Levite. This is important. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know in the Old Testament that God divides up the promised land between the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And in the book of Numbers, we see that God divides up the promised land, what is today Israel, among the 12 tribes. He gives each of them a portion of the land, except for one son, except for one tribe, and it's the tribe of Levi. Instead, what God says to the Levites is that you will not have a portion of the land. Instead, you will be the priests. You will be the ones who work in the temple of God. I'm not going to give you a portion of the land because I myself, God says, I, the Lord your God, will be your portion. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, we see the Levites working, serving in the temple. 
We see them working, serving God, living off the tithe where God is their portion. He meets their needs. Now fast forward. We have Barnabas, a Levite, and he's come into possession of a field. Now, in the Old Testament, the Levites were not allowed to own land. But at some point, this must have been loosened a little bit. But even so, Barnabas now owns a field that was not allowed even by his forefathers, by his ancestors. They weren't allowed to own fields in the Old Testament. But Barnabas has somehow come to acquire a piece of land. Now, if you think about it, this would probably be very important to Barnabas. Think about the first house you bought, the first car you bought, something that was a significant investment. Something was a significant investment. And it's something that you felt like a proud heritage toward. Maybe you're the first person in your family to go to college. Barnabas, a Levite, looks at this and goes, I own a field. It's important to him. And yet we see that Barnabas sells the field. And he takes the proceeds and he lays it at the apostles' feet. How is Barnabas able to do this? I think he's able to do this in this way. Because Barnabas remembers his heritage as a Levite. And he recognizes that God himself has promised to be his portion. And if Barnabas has a portion with the almighty God of the universe, then what's a field? So Barnabas recognizes that God is his portion, that God has promised to meet his needs, that God is what he has, and he's able to be open-handedly and generous with everything else in his life. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, once said, you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. We see that in the life of Barnabas. He remembers his heritage that God, in Deuteronomy 10, says, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. And he recognizes that he has the Lord. The Lord has promised to meet his needs and provide for him. And he can live open-handedly and generous with everything else that he has. Because it's all grace. It's all blessings. God has blessed us to bless others. We've talked about that. That through Jesus Christ, we now have not only had our needs met here, but but our needs met in eternity. So we see that through the example of Barnabas. And Barnabas' example extrapolates out into the early church when they all recognize that now we have a portion. We are heirs with the almighty God through his son, Jesus. So what in the world are we holding on to houses and cars and fields and all these different things? What in the world are we holding on to these things so tightly for? Church, we have an inheritance through the gift of Jesus Christ to us. So what in the world are we holding on to things that aren't going to matter anyway? And so we're able to be uncommonly generous with the things that we have. We don't allow our things to own us. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. We see the early church is marked by a common commitment to uncommon generosity. And my prayer is that we, as the church at Cane Bay, will be marked by the same conviction and the same uncommon practice. A spirit-led church 
will have common convictions to uncommon practices which will produce incredible results. How do we know that? We're still talking about these people 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, a, a group of Jewish people in Israel, halfway across the world, had common convictions to uncommon practices, were spirit-led, one heart, one soul. And 2,000 years later, in Charleston, South Carolina, we're still talking about them and using them as an example for our church. That's an incredible result. They had common commitments, uncommon practices, unity, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, generosity, and God used them mightily. And my prayer is that for the church at Cane Bay, we would be committed to the same things and God would produce the same results because he's the same God of the church at Acts and he's the same God of the church at Cane Bay and we believe that he is able and willing if we will be available and obedient. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you and we're just so thankful for your word how it presses on us and challenges us, even in areas that are, that are hard. Um, God, unity in a, in a group this large is sometimes something that's very difficult to come by, and it doesn't happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't happen without common participation from the believers. And so, God, I pray that your Spirit would, would bind us together God, that we would desire and have one heart, one soul, same motivation, same goals. God, that we would work hard, that every man, woman, and child inside of our circle of accountability, inside of the area that you've called us to, that you've planted us in, might have the opportunity to see here and respond to the gospel. God, I pray that we would never tire of preaching about the resurrection, that we would never tire of speaking about the resurrection, that we would never tire of the idea that our Savior is alive. God, that we would remember that, we would walk in the power of the Spirit, walk in the power of the resurrection. God, that we would be a church that is marked by that. And that, God, that we would be a people that are uncommonly generous. That we would see a need and long to meet the needs for your glory for our joy, for the good of others. Pray that we might be a church that works, lives, and operates that way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen.